If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon. Britain has a new prime minister, Liz Truss, taking over for Boris Johnson. We wanted to talk about who Liz Truss is and the challenges she is facing. We also wanted to talk about the British political scene in general, a scene now also dealing with the passing of the Queen. For this discussion, we caught up with Dr. Joshua Weicker, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Civic Engagement at Immaculata University. The big news of the day in Britain, obviously, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. Her passing, this could bring on a whole new set of issues, too, couldn't it? The 64,000-pound question is whether this prompts a feeling of like national malaise where people think, well, what else can go wrong? Or do you have a rally around the flag effect whereby, you know, public confidence and support of the government and you know the state more generally becomes more pronounced because of this tragedy and we should also remember that while it's true that you know the death of monarch we we haven't lived through this very often in modern american political history or british political history it's true that it's obviously a, a moment of mourning but it, it is also accompanied by subsequently things like a coronation and sort of like an optimistic view of the changes that might be coming so for those who have a view of the monarchy as sort of a, a stilted institution might want to see something updated or changed this would be an opportunity to air those those hopes and those those wishes even if they aren't fulfilled, which could create a, a more positive political environment for Liz Truss as the new prime minister. So there are opportunities there as well in terms of public opinion, but it remains to be seen just what direction that goes in. And it's also entirely possible that you will see a bifurcated result where some segment of the electorate is in the more you know malaise-oriented camp, whereas others are seeing you know, the dawn of a new day. We had a conversation uh, a few months ago when Boris Johnson uh, announced he was going to be stepping down. With all the pieces settled now, how surprised are you that Liz Truss emerged as the prime minister, or did you think she was always a, an odds-on favorite? I'm not surprised. Uh, well, I, rather, I am surprised, but primarily I'm surprised by the fact that Johnson was able to hang on as prime minister while this process played out, because that was one that felt a little bit unrealistic to me. I was less surprised by Liz Truss as a pick, simply because of the of the key front runners, for lack of a better term. She had, I think, the least baggage. I I remember that thinking that Rishi Sunak, who was a good candidate to succeed Boris Johnson, had a major liability in that he was very much like Boris Johnson. He had some of the same liabilities in terms of credibility and, you know, around COVID scandals and things like that, that that Liz Truss did not have. And I thought she was um, a likely pick, especially as it comes down to, you know, two or three potential candidates. Can you give us, for people who aren't familiar, a quick primer on Liz Truss? Sure. Liz Truss was uh, the former foreign minister. She's been a known quantity in British politics at the ministerial level, at the governmental level, for at least the last six or seven years. And uh, she's had some extensive dealings in, in trade negotiations and foreign policy. So not certainly not a bad choice, given what the UK is facing right now, though there remain questions about whether her past experience is actually as much of an asset to her as it might otherwise be, because she has a, a mixed history when it comes to success in those areas. Kind of break down that mixed history. Where, where are the wins? Where are the losses? 
She is not nearly as combative as Boris Johnson in previous negotiations, especially with the EU uh, and around issues of uh, economic and trade policy. But she is certainly not someone you would consider a cooperative figure when it comes to EU negotiations. She has been on record any number of times sort of questioning the EU's motives and whether its requests are reasonable, whether the deal that was agreed finally as Brexit was workable or not. Maybe the biggest fault in this and the biggest thing to be worried about moving forward from in terms of domestic politics in the UK is whether or not she will continue to abide by what's called the North Ireland, Northern, Northern Ireland Protocol, which is a compromise measure that allows goods to flow freely between Ireland and Northern Ireland, which, of course, is part of Great Britain. But it comes at the cost of having to have goods inspected when they cross from Scotland and Wales and England to Northern Ireland. So basically, the UK views this as an infringement on its sovereignty because they can't send, they can't transfer goods within their own country without some kind of EU restrictions. But there was no, there was no neat way of dealing with that problem. She's expressed skepticism about whether that's sustainable. So it may be a problem moving forward for her. And the other challenge she faces, and this relates again to her her past sort of successes and failures, is that she frames herself as a classic, you know, Thatcherite politician, like somebody who doesn't believe in government subsidies and government handouts and, you know, strong anti-union policies. But she's had to waver on some of these issues as she's campaigned for for the prime minister's job. And now we're at rubber meets the road time where she has to sort of pick a side and stick with it because now she's going to be held accountable directly as the person leading the government. These are difficult times in the UK. You hear energy prices through the roof, problems with shortages. Are these things that can be handled or do they have to be managed? Like things are going to be bad. You're the best you can hope for is just to make them less bad than what the the alternate possibility is? It's an interesting question, and I'm going to have to disappoint you. I don't have a clear answer on that. It's, it's not clear the extent to which the decisions and actions and policies of the government are going to be able to just weather the storm versus actually avoid it and steer away from it. Certainly, the questions around energy, questions around trade, Questions around inflation, which are affecting obviously countries around the world that are slightly worse in the UK than they are in the EU more generally. These are not things that can be avoided. It's not entirely clear that even if there is a good way through that this government can find it because to the extent that there's action possible, it's the kind of action that would tend to come from a more labor-oriented, left-oriented government. So if we're talking about dealing with energy prices, one of the proposals on the table is you know a cap on what Britons spend on energy costs. Well, to do that requires that you take sort of an expansive view of the role of the state in limiting what energy companies can charge, windfall, profit taxes that would offset that. These are the kinds of things that would come from a more liberal government. So trying to come from someone who is a a self-expressed and self-defined conservative and Thatcherite conservative, it, it, it might be a tough sell to her own party. And the risk she runs is if she bucks her party too much, that's the kind of thing that could trigger another leadership fight or trigger another general election. So she might be reluctant to take these options, even if they're available to her. We need to take a break. We will have more with Immaculata University's Dr. Joshua Weikert right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. We are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation about new British Prime Minister Liz Truss with Dr. Joshua Weikert of Immaculata University. Liz Truss is the fourth prime minister since 2016. That's also 2016 is when the the Brexit resolution passed. That's four prime ministers in 
six years-ish is an awful lot. And I guess my question is, how much of Britain's political situation is because they voted for something that wasn't impossible, but was incredibly complicated and had never been done before, and people didn't understand what went into it? I mean, is all this kind of the seed planted there? It certainly has made for a chaotic political environment, in large part because Brexit was very likely never going to yield the kind of benefits that the Leave movement argued it would it would have. There, there was a obviously a large public campaign around this. There were a lot of claims made, and that's not uncommon in any big political fight. But the more sort of level-headed, objective, colder analyses of this were almost unanimous in saying that the best case scenario that would come from Brexit is that the economy would be as good as if they stayed. Like that, that was the best case scenario. And there were very, um, there were many, there were a multitude of scenarios whereby the British economy was going to lag behind the rest of Europe because it started, it, w- it was going to lose that synergistic benefit of belonging to this big trading block, right? Th- that's become reality. Britain's inflation rate is, you know, hurting relative to the rest of Europe. Their, their, their trade uh, environment is more complicated and, and harder for them relative to the rest of Europe. The supposed benefits of all this money we're not sending to the EU that we can now spend on the National Health Service, that money hasn't materialized because the claim was false to begin with. So every successive prime minister, certainly you can say in the case of uh, Theresa May, and then subsequently in the the face of Boris Johnson, because they were both big Leave supporters, they've had to pay the price for that more directly. Theoretically, Liz Truss could pivot away from that, but she was herself on both sides of the issue of Brexit. So, and that's that's something that we find a, a theme repeating again and again with regard to her political acumen. I think the French joke is that uh, she's the iron weather vane, and that you know she doesn't have firm positions on these things, though she acts like she does. And I think, as I mentioned at the beginning, that could be an asset because she has some flexibility, she has some room to maneuver. But it comes with a big challenge, which is that she cannot once now staking these positions out shift again without facing a massive credibility crisis, the likes of which Boris Johnson had to deal with constantly. To that point, it seems to me, you know, you come back to Brexit is there is a large swath of people, and this is just from reading articles and, and stuff like that, that basically would only accept all the benefits of the UK being standalone without any of the pain, and they don't understand why that can't be delivered. Like, are too many people living in a, a fantasy world of what is possible, and that's leading to a lot of this, well, you said you were going to do this, and all right, who's next? Like, we just keep push, pushing along here? We could debate for a little while over whether the wishful thinking is more on the part of, you know, sort of the populace that wishes this could be true versus the elites who sold them that idea and hope to benefit from it. But it is certainly true that the the belief that you could have your cake and eat it too with regard to Brexit, that you could have full reversion of your own sovereignty and all this economic freedom, but not have to pay any kind of a price for that was always going to be fanciful. And one of the things that one of the circles that or the squares that never got circled in the whole Brexit debate was, are we still going to be doing business with the EU? And the answer was, of course we are. They're right on our doorstep and they're a large economic force. But that the, it, it led naturally to the next question of, well, then aren't we going to have to deal with lots of EU regulations and EU oversight anyway? And aren't we giving away our ability to influence those, those deliberations? And any, again, just as a sort of a, a neutral observer of it, you'd be like, yeah, you'd really want that question before you answer this one. But 
because Brexit was also an expression of like nationalist identity. It was a question of sort of regional preference because Scotland famously voted overwhelmingly for stay and England voted more for leave. It, it became, it mutated into a, a very different debate. And I think if you could run the vote on Brexit again, say six months after the first vote, I think you would have found something very different in terms of what people would have supported, which was why at the time when Theresa May was negotiating the final deal, a lot of people in parliament were saying, we need another referendum to accept this final deliberation, this final deal with the EU to actually leave, because it does not reflect the promises made during the the Brexit leave campaign. But that never happened. And the process simply proceeded to pace. So now, again, everybody's paying for that, that mismatch of expectations and reality. Liz Truss, as prime minister, any effect on the U.S.-U.K. relationship? I don't think so. Uh, There's nothing in her history that would suggest she would be an especially troublesome partner. Her strategic views for U.S. foreign policy and British foreign policy follow a fairly conventional uh, line of thinking. So, no, I don't see any problems there. We mentioned all the prime ministers and all are conservatives. All of this has been done under conservative rule. The Labor Party has had incredible difficulty getting footing in in recent years. What will it take for Labor to get off the mat and be able to compete again nationwide? Or am I overstating their problem? I wouldn't say you're overstating their problem, but more that that was their problem. I don't think they have it anymore. I I think what they need now is simply the opportunity to do so. So in the next general election, whenever that is, and Liz Truss dropped a line into a tweet recently about when the conservatives face election again in 2024, hinting that there would not be a snap election. I think just whenever we see that next general election, whether it's soon, which I don't think it will be, or in 23 or in 24, I think the Labour Party is now well positioned because their problem in 2020 was not so much that conservatives were so popular as a party, so much as Labour was seen as rather unpopular in part because of their leadership. They've since undergone you know, more than one evolution in who's in charge of the Labour Party, and they've, they've solved sort of their message messenger problem. They now have a much more coherent leadership team that should be able to make a good coherent national argument the, just the next time we have a general election in the UK. We've obviously focused on the new prime minister, Boris Johnson. What's next for him, do you think? That is a great question. I have absolutely no, nothing would surprise me, I don't think. I don't know if he himself has expressed any particular wishes uh, for his post-prime ministerial life. It would not surprise me to see him, though, going off and doing some of these sort of traditional you know, I've left office sort of things, you know, speaking tours and you know, making some money. That, that, that would be not surprising. However, we do need to keep in mind that unlike in the U.S., there are lots of second acts in British politics. Just because you're not prime minister anymore doesn't mean you never will be again. So you may see him taking a, an ongoing role in public commentary on the issues of the day, not sharpshooting Liz Truss, but just out there as a voice for the conservative party. What's his legacy as PM? Probably that he survived as long as he did. I I don't know if you recall the circumstances of his election as prime minister, but he was seen as someone who was who lucked in. He was in the right place at the right time. Nobody much supported him. By the way, this should be an object lesson for how we view Liz Truss and her prospects, too, because early polling of Britain's uh, or early days of her administration show that a majority rank her as already as poor or terrible. 
which says something, by the way, about British polling, that those are options on the poll. <laughs> it's not just job approval, yes or no. The, the two bottom options are poor and terrible. And a majority view her that way. And a majority do not believe she is, you know, in a good position to make the kind of changes the country needs. But much the same view was held of Boris Johnson. And yet he managed to hold on to power for quite a long time relative to his level of support coming in, both within his party and in the electorate as a whole. So it it is never easy to make predictions in British politics. But at the same time, I think that he his, his reputation will not be especially helped by his time as prime minister, but neither will it especially be hurt. He, he, he reinforced his brand throughout his time in office. How long do you think it will take for things to settle in Britain, where we don't see this type of turnover at the top and the realities of Brexit become baked into the cake and adjustments are made or changes. You know, how long do you think they are in for this kind of period of upheaval and change? I think they should buckle down for the long haul uh, in terms of, I mean, I'm not sure if you consider three or four years a long stretch of time. I, I would if I was living in those sort of like chaotic political times, which obviously many Americans feel we have been for several years. But there's not much prospect for significant changes because what it will take is a general election where the Labour Party manages to get a true legislative majority in parliament, a new prime minister, some time to implement some new policies and some time for those policies to take effect. And I think if all of that comes to fruition, it's still going to take some time unless a snap election is called and you can sort of move the time frame up. But that's what it's going to take. It's going to take time for policy changes to actually be implemented. And it will probably need some kind of a shift in or a unifying effect of some kind happening in British public opinion that pushes the UK back towards the EU, probably not back to full membership, but towards a more cooperative working relationship where broadly the public accepts that this is going to take more accommodation on their part. And once you get that, once you stabilize your economic situation, you generally see stabilization of lots of other political problems in the wake of those, just because economics is so closely tied to so many other policy issues. So we kind of talked about the problems and we talked about how much of it's tied to Brexit. This energy crisis, I mean, we just had a summer where we hit $5 a gallon gas and people were going bonkers. Kind of dig into the energy crisis part of this. How bad are things there? This is something that's hitting Europe as a whole. But of course, the EU has tools because they're a larger trading block. Of, they, they can probably more effectively deal with it. Britain is standing off on its own, which, of course, was what they wanted. Right. And you see Liz Truss in the early days of her administration making statements around the idea of removing restrictions on fracking, of identifying uh, supports for Britons as they have to pay higher costs for heating oil and natural gas and whatever else they might be heating with. And this is something she's going to have to get her hands around very quickly because, you know, winter is coming. It's it's going to happen. And this is something that's going to be ongoing for a little while, as long as the Russia-Ukraine situation persists and probably for a little while after. And while the EU is in a position to, again, pull more levers to try and keep those prices under control and source new providers of, of natural gas and, and heating oil, Britain's options are more limited because the EU is a more attractive partner. And it's not so much that the UK can't get in on those deals. It's just that they're always going to be a, a, a minor partner in them, whereas the EU is going to be the major target. So this is one of the areas where trust faces a significant challenge because this is one where it's going to rely a lot on third-party actors to behave in ways that help Britain versus hurt them. And there's not a lot of flexibility. There's only so much natural gas floating around in the world market. 
That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 